0: Dysfunctionals. I am Ernesto Morales, hardcore rep in the 517L town straight out of the east side. I'm Alex Janish. And in this episode of The Reality Dysfunction, we will be discussing a little-known essay by Edward Lawrence Kotzenbach Jr. titled, Time, Space, and Will, The Politico-Military Views of Mao Zedong. But first, a little context for our history buffs.
1: Eddie Kotzenbach was born February 24, 1919. He died April 23, 1974 by self-inflicted gunshot wound. He served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Education and Manpower Resources under John F. Kennedy. After serving in the Marine Corps during World War II, Kotzenbach began teaching at Princeton in 1946. From there he served as Deputy Director of the Historical Section with the Pentagon in 1951 and then his research associate with the Institute of War and Peace Studies at Columbia until 1955. From Columbia,
0: he went to Harvard to direct defense studies and wrote many widely quoted critiques of American military preparedness, winning a reputation as an astute analyst of defense, policy, and international relations. From 1958 to 1960, Mr. Katzenbach was Director of Academic Development at Brandeis University and then joined the Pentagon as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense
1: for Education and Manpower Resources. Mao Zedong, born December 26, 1893, died September 9, 1976. Commonly known as Chairman Mao, he was a Chinese communist revolutionary who became a founder of the People's Republic of China, which he served as the chairman of the Communist Party of China from its establishment in 1949 until his death in 1976. His theories, military strategies, political policies, and their further development are collectively known as Maoism. Mao is regarded as one of the most influential
0: and important individuals in modern world history. He is also known as a political intellect, theorist, military strategist, poet, and visionary. Under Mao's leadership, the Chinese defeated the Japanese and drove imperialism out of China, modernizing the nation and building it into a world power, promoting the status of women improving education and health care, as well as increasing life expectancy as China's population grew from around 550 million to over 900 million under his leadership. Conversely, his regime has been called autocratic and totalitarian and condemned for bringing about mass repression and destroying religious and cultural
1: artifacts and sites. Today we will investigate the question of how this little gem gives contemporary Indigenous people in the United States new ways to think about resistance, developing revolutionary will, and the future of Indigenous national liberation. I mean, let's start this conversation. I I think it has to be mentioned that, you know, Chairman Mao is specifically remembered in the political context. If you hear him about... Hear him on Fox News, they said he created the greatest genocide of the modern era. Like the last hundred years, people will say that Stalin and Mao killed more people than the Nazis did. That's a far-right and pretty central-right talking point for some reason. Why, why, why are we reading this guy? Well, I
0: think they're, they're leaving one big killer out of that equation, and that's the whole system of capitalism. China's also a world power now, probably the world power even in many ways surpassing the United States. So, I guess it's all in how you look at it, really. But the reason that we're reading Mao today is this. Mao's theories about revolutionary war have been used all across the globe to great success. I mean, he was talking or writing about what contemporary military thinkers would call asymmetrical warfare in the 30s and the 40s. And really... The whole idea that it even exists now, I think in a large part is due to the writings of Mao Zedong and the way that those writings have been implemented in Vietnam, other places in uh, South America, Peru. I think it's a good example. Colombia is a good example. The Bolivar Revolution. Yeah. I mean, all, all across the globe, right? I mean, that's one of the reasons why we're talking about Mao. I mean, there may have been things that, you know, he did that weren't right or people didn't agree with or, you know, all of that. I think that all of us on some level have that. I mean, I don't know. I'm not trying to make apologies for the dude. (laughs) But, I mean, in terms of thinking about how it is that underdeveloped nations resist industrialized nations, I mean, if you want to have or you want to investigate those ideas currently, you have to start with Mao Zedong. You can't Dismiss his writings because you don't like other things about him
1: Yeah, I think it brings back to the Bobbio conversation that we were having over the past couple of weeks Mao is important because Mao was one of the most successful Anti-capitalists in the history of the modern era. He was the most successful Without
0: a doubt without a question the way this article starts and I think that this is also very important is Katzenbach quoting Mao and Mao saying, the main form of struggle is war. The main form of organization is the army. Without armed struggle, there will be no place for the proletariat. There will be no place for the people. There will be no communist party. There will be no victory in revolution. I mean, that's a a mouthful. Without armed struggle, there will be no victory in revolution. What we begin to kind of pick up right from the beginning is that Mao has a very certain way of thinking about how change is made. And that certainly comes a, a large in a large part from his own experiences in driving the Japanese out of China, in establishing the Communist Party, in doing all of those things. But I think that what's really important to remember and this really gets us to the to the point of even really even talking about this article, right away what Katzenbach makes really clear is that there are three uh, different ways to think about war. And they're what he calls the tangibles and the intangibles. And for Katzenbach, the tangibles, pieces of, or the parts of thinking about military theory that the West has really devoted itself to are the weapons system, the supply systems, and manpower. And really, I mean, if we think about how we... In the United States think about uh, war I mean that's certainly true right we have the best weapons we have amazing supply systems we have manpower having those things is based in the industrialization of the United States or of Western powers and so Mao because China at the time wasn't an industrialized country had to devote his theory of war to what Katzenbach calls the three intangibles, space, time, and will. And Katzenbach also says that Western military analysts have given very little thought to those three things.
1: Yeah, so I, I think Katzenbach is talking about that classically. We talk about warfare as two sides meeting in the middle on a battlefield, like the you know the famous... Braveheart story, yeah, the, right. the Scottish are going to meet the British after years of guerrilla warfare They, you know, but real battle happens on a battlefield where two sides meet and there's this moral element of it, that that's the fair way to do battle. I
0: don't think that's what Mao's getting at. No, it's it's not what Mao's getting at. What Mao's getting at, and really what his basic premise in all of his writings about this, is that political mobilization may be substituted for industrial mobilization with a successful military outcome. This is what Katzenbach is writing. In other words, the duty of the army is to politically mo- mobilize, is to create propaganda, is to go out into the nation, the communities, the villages, the cities, and to educate people politically. And so, I mean, this is part of the thing I think that is
1: really quite interesting. Also to to build hope as a propaganda machine. Yeah, um, absolutely. They're they're giving hope in the whole hearts and minds conversation. The army does not fight necessarily to beat the enemy, especially in the case of Mao's Red Army. There is no way they're going to beat the enemy in warfare like that but their goal as the propaganda machine was to win over the people to show them that that they were not going to be defeated yes and so I mean when we think about and for me in particular
0: I found this article when I was doing my doctoral program and it was very impactful to me because part of what I had experienced through the first part of my adulthood in working in different communities as an organizer was really seeing how this begins to work. We go into communities and we look at indigenous communities all across the uh, the hemisphere. I and mean, we can talk uh, specifically about here in the United States, but all across the hemisphere, uh, indigenous communities are deindustrialized through the process of settler colonialization. The ability, or our ability as indigenous people, to uh, be producers of
1: things other than culture well they're intentionally abandoned the means of production well
0: they've been it's been decimated we we don't have a means of production there is no there is no production what we produce as communist people is is culture so even thinking that through like people would say you know this is stolen indigenous land yeah it is stolen indigenous land so what so what it's stolen I mean what are you just gonna Keep telling them it's stolen until one day they decide to give it back to you, you know, or, you know, do you have a way of taking it back, right? I mean, in uh, Wretched of the Earth, Fanon is very clear. He says that there is no way that you make colonialism blush by spreading out cultural trinkets for it to see. Settler colonialism does not care that this is stolen land. That's not really the point. We can continue to point that out, we can talk about it, we can do whatever. The question becomes at a certain point, okay, if this is your land, then how do you take it back? How do you do that? What's the process for doing that? But then people will say, well, we can't take it back because you know we don't control, you know, the means of production, we can't make guns, we don't have this power, we can't do all of these things. But what Mao was saying is, wait a minute, you can, right? If you all can agree that this is what you're going to do, number one, and you figure out how to politically mobilize the community or the people that you're trying to get to fight. I mean, that's political mobilization equals industrial mobilization. I mean, it's kind of a wild thought, but we've seen it happen
1: all over the world. They obviously have the, the means and the resources to pay themselves into uh, into creating laws, but the only way that we as people organizing can stop these things without these massive amounts of cash is to get everyone on the same page, political organization, and that comes from um, and that comes from going out and doing education, popular education. Mao says that political mobilization
0: is the most fundamental condition for winning the war. That's a fascinating statement. Here's a man who spent his entire adult life waging revolutionary war. It's not like, you know, your friend who's, you know, smoking a joint with you while you guys are watching Ally McBeal, you know, talking about how there's going to be a
1: revolution, man. This, this guy... For those who uh, weren't born in the 70s, <laughs> Ally McBeal was a show on in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> this, this guy did it right and what
0: he's saying is if you want to win you have to politically mobilize the population it's not a hippie pipe dream it's not this it's not flower child crap you've i mean it's real political mobilization is real right and it is the fundamental condition for winning the war people power People power. So now, like one of the things that Kotzenbach brings out, and I think that this is kind of key, although it's key to our discussion, although he doesn't spend a lot of time talking about it in the article, he just says it one time. He says that when Miles says the war, he's not talking about a specific war, he's talking about war in general. So we think about how that then impacts us on all the different levels we are organizing on. We're working on a union campaign. I would say that political mobilization is the fundamental condition to winning that war. Dapple political mobilization is the fundamental condition to winning that war. Reclaiming indigenous lands. political mobilization is the fundamental condition to winning that war. Political mobilization. you notice that Mao is now saying mobilization around culture or mobilization around traditions or, mobilization around food or identity or, you know, the multitude of other things that people are trying to mobilize around. He's saying political mobilization. That is what creates the will, and we'll talk about in a second, to resist. But the part that's really important to remember is this. Conversion takes time. Right? You just don't walk into a room full of people and say, all right, this is how it's going to be. This is how it is. I mean, some people might agree with you. A lot of people won't. So this whole idea of political mobilization, is, it's a, a process that takes place over a period of time. So what Katzenbach is saying is that Mao's military problem was how to organize space so that it could be made to yield time. His political problem was how to organize time so that it could be made to yield will, the quality which makes willingness to sacrifice the order of the day and the ability to bear suffering cheerfully the highest social virtue. Space plus time equals will. Now, China's a big country, right? So when Mao says space, he's talking about real space. He's talking about miles, kilometers, square miles, right? I mean, he's talking about hills and mountains and valleys. But here in the Americas, that space has been taken from us, right? We're not, we don't inhabit space the way that we did during the initial contact of the European invasion. And we actually have different ways of talking about space now. We talk about space as spaces of identity, right? We're Hispanic or we're Latinx or Chicanx or you know, indigenous, all of these different things. I would submit that the way that we think about this is that we think about these different identities as spaces and that we move through those spaces. And we can see the sort of the the progression of it. I mean, when uh, Europeans first landed here, indigenous people were Tlaxcalan or they were Mexica or they were one of these number of different things. And that was a space that they that they inhabited, right? We were also literal governments and all that at that time, nations. But then as time progresses, that space that they inhabit, they become Mexican. Or they become mestizos or they become indios, right? As time moves forward, they become Mexican-American, they become Chicano, they become Hispanic, they become Latino. And so each one of these spaces then becomes a way that this conquered population escapes that final moment of assimilation, right? As they escape through these spaces and and as they escape through these spaces and they maintain some hold on this identity, they're buying time, right? They're organizing time to develop the will of the people to resist. But what is it that we're resisting? I mean, I think what we're resisting is settler colonialism.
1: Not defeat in general? That we're resisting defeat? And by defeat, I mean specifically what you were saying about assimilation. Ultimately, what we are
0: resisting is settler colonialism. Because ultimately, as a part of a movement of national liberation, I mean, there comes a moment in the national liberation process when the people who have been colonized, in this case, indigenous people, who are colonized, who live under this settler colonial system, they have to make a decision. And this decision is, who is it they want to be? Do we get our stolen land back, or do we just keep talking about it? Because if we're going to take our stolen land back, if we're going to say, no, that somehow we're going to reclaim this land, we're going to reclaim our sovereignty over that land, that opens up a whole new uh, category in terms of how it is that we begin to think about ourselves. So as we move through these spaces, what we are resisting, right, we're organizing time the same way that Mao used retreat or he gave up space to keep the destruction of his force, the, the, his force and being from happening is the same way that we move through, I think as indigenous people, we move through these different spaces of identity to keep our destruction from happening. The ultimate goal is to return to history, right? To win.
1: And that's accomplished by national liberation, is what you said. Could you maybe talk about what national liberation is real quick? Well, I I think it, and if we want to use Mao's example, I mean, we
0: might as well stick with what we have here in front of us, right? What Mao was doing was throwing the Japanese out of China. So you have China as a country or a nation, and then you have the Japanese come in. When the Japanese come in, they begin to militarily occupy and to colonize China. Mao begins a war of liberation against them and in the end kicks them out. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is this. If we're talking about liberation for indigenous people, what do we mean by liberation? Because all across the globe, it's really clear what everyone else has meant by liberation. They haven't meant greater inclusion into the settler colonial society. They haven't meant they get or live better under a capitalist system. What liberation has meant in all of these anti-colonial struggles across the globe is that the colonized seize power and that they return as a nation to being in control of the land that was once theirs. So that's the question, right? We have to sort of wrestle with. I mean, these are not these are not metaphors. Mao is not a metaphor. Fanon is not a metaphor. Cabral is not a metaphor. I mean, they're talking about
1: how you throw out your colonizer. So, the real goal of these things is to be able to determine over one's land and one's history and one's everyday life, right? He's explaining this scientifically and trying to use his direct experience as a military leader, as one of the most successful military leaders over the past hundred years, to create a game plan for these things, a blueprint on how to create your own nation.
0: Well, it's a blueprint on how to conduct a revolutionary war. That's really what it is. I mean, the big part of it, and this is important, I mean, when we talk about asymmetrical warfare, we're talking about unindustrialized nations confronting industrialized nations, that one of the main issues becomes how to avoid a military decision. This is important. It's important for organizers. It's important for indigenous people today. It's important for anybody within the confines of the United States who is thinking about how to make social change. How do we avoid a military decision? How do we avoid being in front of the crushing forces that are against us, that will end the occupation, that will end... The, the sit-in that will end the campaign, right? Because just like Mao, what we want to do is we want to escape that decision until we have organized the will of the people to resist. And so that, that might sound kind of woo-woo-y to some people, but remember that when he says that, what he's talking about is political mobilization. What we're talking about is political mobilization how do we develop the political will of the people to resist and the only way that we can do that is to keep from being destroyed which means that we have to avoid the military decision
1: retreat 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 avoid capture avoid defeat Take only the easiest victories.
0: Well, I mean, he talks about that too actually in here, right? Saying that the only way to engender this spirit of
1: resistance is to win. Now- Because it creates hope. Well, because it creates hope. We do not build political mobilization by losing all of the time. When someone is arrested at a rally and there is no victory there, we see a loss. We see the intense power of the state or the colonizer or the oppressor. What Mao says is that we should take whatever easy victory because the only way to build hope and to pretty much develop that ride-or-die mentality of our communities in order to build political mobilization is small victories. Because there's no way to have a huge victory. What we need to do is to keep small victories and small victory and outlast the, the enemy.
0: The point of all this isn't necessarily to destroy them. It's to make them give up. There's that old union chant, one more day, one more day, one more day. Who can take it the longest? And this is really the the, the basis of this. And so when we think about like what that means in, in our communities, what it means to build long-term political campaigns that are educating people about their History. Well, they, I know about their history as indigenous people, right? About the things that have happened to uh, Chicanos here in the United States. The way that indigenous people have been disenfranchised in every way, shape, and form after this genocide that was perpetrated on them, disenfranchised from even being participants or citizens of the government that occupied the space that they once controlled. When people begin to learn about those things, that's political mobilization. That's beginning to understand why this return to history is important. And so when we think about what the end game of that is, right? I mean, is the end game of that simply that we're aware of centuries of oppression and that we're somehow just really proud of the fact that we survived? I mean, that's, that's the end game is us being proud that we're still here. I don't think that that's the end game. I think it's kind of a... kind of whack. How do we take this to its logical conclusion?
1: Well, I, I just think that that's a conversation that we've had before, not necessarily on the show, but that those small victories lead to hope and a stalemate that happens. And it's not about ceding space or anything. You just don't know which side's going to win. Is it the... Is it this side or is it the, the, uh, the occupying side that's going to win in these things? And a stalemate happens when the people have belief that they can win because of the sheer stubbornness, maybe, it could be a way of saying it, but just never actually admitting defeat. And that comes through the political mobilization. And then it must leap to that third space, which is the development of the army. And I think that's what I'm hearing, this idea of nation that you're talking about. I hear, keep hearing you mention the political mobilization, going out and winning these things, but a lot of times things will just end there.
0: Well, yeah, and and I mean, it's a, in in a lot of ways, it's really understandable why why they do end. What it means if you keep going forward is armed resistance. I mean, it's just what it means, or it means abdication of that identity. It's it's one of those two things. It's I think very hard to come in between because the problem, especially in, I think, a country like ours, right, we experience a tremendous amount of of free speech. And so people talk about things very openly, you know, about genocide, about 400 years of African slavery, about uh, revolutionary warfare, warfare, about the way that uh, police officers are executing black and brown men and women in uh you know massive record numbers all across the the country and so at a certain point what happens is that as we begin to to talk about those things um or as we begin to really uh, put them forward some people are going to be really upset about that you know like it's it it affects them in a in a way that they can't really brush it off or move it aside, right? I mean, it, it is clear to them that the forces that are arrayed against them are arrayed against them in a way that demands their life, that demands, and it demands it in a, in a multitude of ways. It demands it through the work. It demands it maybe on the street, in confrontations with the law. When we think about that, one through of the...
1: capitalism.
0: Through capitalism. And as we're thinking about that, one of the things that Kotzenbach writes, and he's writing about Mao, he says, and Mao writes this, although defeat frequently makes heroes, it does not encourage a spirit of resistance. And that is, I think, a big piece of the, what we're talking about right now. There can only be so many heroes. There's only so many martyrs. And then a response must be given. The great thing about all of this is that who knows when it's gonna happen there's literally no time set there's no time frame for it resistance develops until it is to the point that it can reveal itself i mean to say oh this is going to happen next week or these people over here are doing this or whatever i mean it's doesn't need to be said
1: But i think it's interesting what you're talking about mao is not saying that these things need to be pushed out there but So what Mao is
0: saying is that we will trade all the space that we need to trade
1: for the time to develop the will. And to be really clear, that trading space means retreat and not getting arrested and not expending the resources of the army or the politically mobilized force already. When you're already at a severe disadvantage to industrialized weaponry, going out and... Getting arrested takes valuable resources and time, and is not actually engaging the enemy in on your conditions, but engaging the enemy on their own conditions. When you're guaranteed to go to a jail, that is that is a losing battle, and that is not what wins hope in any sort of way. Mao specifically says the only way to engage with people, engage with the enemy, is to engage in spots of a five to one battle or a ten to one battle. And however larger of an advantage that you can get, specifically fighting on your own terms, is the only way to move through the first and second stage.
0: Yeah, all the time politically mobilizing in the community, right? I mean, those are, those are the key elements. Mao writes that when the Red Army fights, it fights not merely for the sake of fighting, but to agitate the masses, to organize them, and to help them establish revolutionary political power. Apart from such objectives, fighting loses its meaning, and the Red Army, the reason for its existence.
1: Yeah, I mean, the army fights to win people, not defeat their enemy. And as organizers, as uh, purveyors of indigenous resistance,
0: we should think about Activity. our fighting, well, we should think about our fighting in the same way. I mean, are we fighting to agitate the masses, or are we fighting so that we look like, you know, a badass? These are questions that, that need to be answered. What is the political mobilization plan that is in operation around the work that we're doing? How are we teaching? How are we educating? How are we being educated? I mean, these are these are important questions. Because all, everything else other than that is what Mao calls desperadoism. Right, heroics, vain heroics, into the valley of death, rode the five hundred. I mean, those guys got slaughtered. It makes a great poem, right? They're heroes, the the light brigade. I mean, we all know them. My grandma used to say that poem to me when I was a little boy. But it, that
1: is not how you win. It's
0: <laughs> no, it's how you lose. Yeah. <laughs> they, they literally died. They literally lost. They died. Yeah, that's why I said great poem, right? But, I think we have enough poems. We have enough poems. We have enough martyrs. Now is not the time for martyrs. Now is the time for leaders and for thinkers for people who are ready to begin that mobilization right that takes the meme the this is the stolen land meme to to the next to the next level.
1: I'm really thinking about it in the long term, yeah. Not just engaging in this moment, engaging in the spectacle of all of these things. And I think it's interesting, too, to kind of, you know, a little bit earlier, but in Europe, there was a... The propaganda of the deed was becoming a tradition of specific activists throughout Europe and the United States, hoping that this would build some sort of revolutionary moment. But we see what happened to the anarchists that tried to kill McKinley or killed the Archduke Ferdinand or something. Mm-hmm. Nothing was created out of political mobilization. Political mobilization is created through relationships and is not something that is inherent within people. The working class has a does not have a class consciousness buried deep down when it seems a, sees a bomb. There's not a political mobilization that happened. These things have to be worked for. And through having a, a program, right? I
0: mean, like... There, there has to be. When we say political mobilization, I mean, there has to be a a baseline thing that we're mobilizing around, you know. And it's it's not necessarily, saying oh you you know you have to, teach people how to be communists or you have to, teach them about socialism. But I mean the the question really that you would have to ask yourself is, why not? Why not learn about those things? Clearly, they are a threat, to the status quo to the world to the world that we live in the their threat to the status quo so i mean why why wouldn't we learn about those why wouldn't we find ways even as indigenous people to incorporate as many different ideas as we can
1: into the political mobilization of our communities especially ones that have a shared enemy especially I mean, the enemy of my enemy, the enemy of my enemy, should be at least someone that we're willing to uh, entertain their ideas. <laughs> <for>.
0: <laughs> That's some somebody I know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so
0: yeah, I think what Kotsabak is saying about Mao, well, it, it is important. I mean, he's taking, particularly Mao's nineteen thirty eight essay on protracted warfare, and really boiling it down for us, you know, as the readers the ideas that he's putting forward are pertinent. They're pertinent to indigenous struggles today. I mean, as we think about, you know, how we reclaim uh, sovereignty, how we stop the intense attacks on indigenous communities all across the hemisphere. I mean, we have to really begin to think about what it means to politically mobilize. I mean, I think the Zapatistas are a really great example. I'm not saying they're Maoists, but they got some stuff going on that's exactly like what we're talking about here. Whether they call themselves Maoists or not, I think is completely irrelevant. They have a program of political education, and that education has begun to carve out you know, what I would call a uh, distinct challenge to the Mexican government in the state of Chiapas. I mean, they have self-governing autonomous zones and so you know this in many ways is beginning you know that sort of return to history right i mean where they're saying no we're not going to participate in this thing that you guys call mexico anymore i mean we're building these these autonomous zones that are based on the traditions and the culture of the people that inhabit them and we're willing to, to fight for those things.
1: And take power in a certain way. I mean, you could look at the history of the Zapatistas. I don't know how many years they were waiting in the jungle between, before 1994. But now they've held an autonomous area for 25 years, to the point that they're now actually talking about running politicians in certain ways. I don't know exactly what that means to their idea of nation in these things. Obviously, there is similarities between what Mao is saying as the fundamental conditions of winning war. They built political mobilization. They created spaces that built consciousness in a way where despair was taken out of the minds of the people to the point that they thought they could win. Now they hold a nation. They hold an autonomous space in Mexico. And I think one of the most important things of this essay, Katzenbach points out numerous times, is... The only thing that the Revolutionary Army has to do is never admit defeat. And I I think the Zapatistas, going forward, they've never admitted defeat in any sort of way, and they're just trying to outlast the Mexican government. I think that's a real lesson to be learned. As long as we don't say that we lost, we haven't lost yet.
0: Yeah. And again, I think that these are very practical suggestions that organizers all across the country can take into the campaigns and the communities that they're working in. I think particularly indigenous organizers, as we begin to work out what it means to be an indigenous person in the, in the twenty first century, not admitting defeat, figuring out through our campaigns how it is that we uh, score small victories. It doesn't need to be the ultimate crushing defeat, but small victories that engender that spirit of resistance right that develop will those are the moments that lead us to liberation those are the moments that led Mao to the defeat of the Japanese I mean as we retreat as they take more as they consume and as they eat I mean it's it's okay right because what that means the more they take the more they have to defend. The more they take, the more they're responsible for.
1: And, and the only thing we have to be responsible for is...
0: Not giving up. Yes. That's it. That's the only thing we have to be responsible for.
1: Because our force in being is what keeps an army alive. That's right. Kotzenbach says that the only the, des- only the destruction of the enemy's force in being can bring an end to resistance. Enforcing being in a country such as China where dependence on goods is minimal can survive under unbelievable conditions. It can survive
0: under unbelievable conditions in the hood too. It's all relative, it's about not giving up I just want to reiterate that I think it's important, one, that people download this article and read it for themselves. I think it's I think it's really good. It's very short. And it's extremely accessible. I think it is. Do you think it's accessible?
1: I think that the article is very accessible. It's not written in the way that a Stuart Hall essay about Gramsci would be written, but it's specifically written easily enough so that people who have no background in the revolutionary ideas of Mao Zedong could pick it up and read it. This is specifically made for American soldiers and commanders yeah. of places. Yeah. This is in critical theory that we're reading here.
0: Yeah. uh formulation of space plus time equals will, he's very clear that that is how he is formulating Mao's theories, that Mao himself never actually says space plus time equals will. But I find it very helpful, and I've found it very helpful over the last 10 years or so to, to think about it that way. Space, traditionally means actual physical space. The spaces that indigenous people inhabit in the United States today, or in the Americas today, are much more built around identity and culture. Our physical spaces have been taken away from us through conquest, through the conquest of the settler colonial system. We have neighborhoods sometimes that we live in, lands that we live on. But for the most part, uh, what we're really talking about is the way that we, the way that we think about ourselves. Who who are we? What is the space that we occupy that allows us to escape this moment of assimilation that would make it incumbent upon us to give up any claims that we would have to the land, to the sovereignty of the land that we live on right now. In Moving through these spaces or in giving up these spaces or in occupying these spaces, what we do is organize time. And that time is literally time, right? We move through centuries, we move through decades, we move through years, always resisting this idea of assimilation, this idea of destruction. And with that time, we develop the will of the people. And so a big part of that, and we think about ethnic studies programs, or we think about the MAS program in um, Tucson that was just that just recently went through all those court battles. Those are examples of political mobilization that develop the will of the people to resist. Ethnic studies is a political mobilization that develops the will of people to resist. Now, one of the reasons that I say that, and and this is. This is my guess. In the 2010 census, there were 149,944 people who were Mexican-American who marked themselves as native, as indigenous people here in the United States. Now, numerically, that's not a huge part of the 33 million or so people who filled out the census who were Mexican-American. but. It does make Mexican-Americans the third largest grouping of Native Americans in the United States. As that number continues to grow, and I I don't know exactly how to prove this, but my sincere belief is that the majority of those people who mark that have probably gone through some sort of ethnic studies program. It's that education. It's that political mobilization. And even if they haven't directly, that they have been influenced by somebody who has it is that political mobilization that develops the will. That is what Mao was talking about. There is a collision. It is inevitable. But the collision is either one of acquiescence or one of rebellion. That's the the question that we that we have to answer for ourselves. That indigenous people have to answer for themselves.
1: You were talking about space changing in the 21st century as more of an identity? I don't know, I'm just kind of thinking about the temporarily uh, autonomous zones. Space not just as an identity, but actually as it could be a physical space in some places. We were talking earlier about the reason specifically guerrilla warfare in the second stage is so dangerous is that at a certain point, if the hearts and minds are won by the people of the country, if the propaganda machine of the army has been doing its job and people believe that the army can win. That means that there is supporters of the army all throughout surrounding soldiers of the state, whether it be police or white supremacist representatives. But we create certain spaces and we hold these spaces in our homes, in our community centers, in our neighborhoods, at barbecues and things like that, where these spaces become... Determined over by certain people instead of by the colonizing state. I I think that autonomous zones,
0: temporary autonomous zones, I mean, they're all important, right? I mean, these are these are moments of creation, of rebellion. I think that what I think that what, um, what Mao is saying, and and I I think I agree with it, is that this isn't the hill that we make our last stand on, right? Was that space is space is space it's not that the spaces aren't important what's important is developing the will of the people it's not about the brick and the mortar right it's about the spirit of resistance
1: well I mean what I was getting at more is that a conversation can create a space and if that helps develop the will of the people where someone feels that they have the ability or there is a hope in their mind that they can determine for themselves that's a beautiful moment. And that's the kind of space that creates things. Absolutely. immediately forfeit these things. It I, can happen in the McDonald's, right? You know, under the nose of the capitalists. But, like, it's forfeited within that moment. But what's what matters is the lasting effect that that conversation has towards the political mobilization. So that, that pers- both those people leave that conversation to further spread these conversations and further create political mobilization for people. Yeah. Yeah. That's all we have for today. We want to thank our dysfunctionals for joining us again, for tuning in. I got an email from a listener the other day that they recorded it on tape through their car radio. I didn't know people still did that. Analog rules, I hear. We want to leave you with these last few thoughts. Political mobilization
0: can take the place of industrial mobilization in liberation struggles. Political mobilization is the most fundamental condition for winning the war. The question facing indigenous communities today is how are we mobilizing politically?
1: Mao Zedong is a controversial figure, no doubt. But what isn't controversial is his contribution to global revolutionary thought and warfare. There's a reason the Red Book is one of the highest printed and distributed books in the world. Because his science of war has been proving successful throughout the 20th century and it appears even into the 21st. As always, check out our website,
0: waroftheflea.org, for more Weird Voices of the Resistance, Resources and Archives of Indigenous Struggle. Check out Leo Morales's Detour Mod Project, Slime City Disciples. And if you're in Prescott, Arizona, come say hello at the Franz Fanon Community
1: Strategy Center. I can be found creating my own autonomous zone in front of the computer, rarely actually tweeting at Bing Bong Victory. Professor Ernesto Morales is tired of playing compudante. At Ernesto Morales. I'm Alex Yanish. I'm Ernesto Morales. And And we we are are the Reality reality
0: Dysfunction.